the question for us this morning is who wrote the Bible? We took a couple weeks off from our study that we were doing, our series on what is the Bible, how do we use it, and why should we care? And we talked about Easter for a little while, but now we're finishing up over the next couple weeks. And today we're talking about who wrote the Bible. Now usually you know who wrote a book because you look at the cover of it, and somewhere on it, it shows the name. This is one of my favorite books right here. This was written by C.S. Lewis because it proudly says it right across the top. Or maybe you have a book and it says Stephen King across the bottom. And you know who wrote it because there, there are names on it. But the, the issue is a little bit more complicated with the Bible. And uh, this next slide kind of makes it clear because you have things like Psalms 23.1 where it says a psalm of David. David wrote this psalm. And then in Romans 1.1 it says Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, writing to everyone in Rome. And then you have in Acts 1.1, Luke says, Hey, Theophilus, I'm writing to you just like I wrote in the book Luke. Now I'm writing to you in the book Acts about all that Jesus did and teach. So we have these varied authors. But at the same time, if we want to go to that next slide, there's also things in the Bible like this, where it says in Jeremiah 7.3, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Jeremiah says, I'm writing this book, but the Lord Almighty is the one speaking and in 1 Corinthians 7.10, Paul says, I give this command, but it's really not I giving it, but God commanding this. And in Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, it says, God at many times in the past communicated his words to us through the prophets, but now in this time he communicated to us through his son, Jesus. And so Hebrews is saying there's many times where these books that we say the prophet wrote it was actually God communicating. In fact, there's over 3,000 references throughout the Bible that say something about this is the word of God. This is God speaking. This came from God. At the same time, we have these human authors. So, so which is it? Did, did David write it or did God write it? Did Paul write it or did God write it? And this complication actually makes the Bible pretty unique as a sacred book. Like a lot of other sacred books don't have this issue. Uh, the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith said he found these magic, uh, not magic, ancient metal plates that an angel showed him and he dug those up and so something supernatural, something divine wrote these plates and then he just put them onto paper and uh, that's the story of how they got the Book of Mormon. And so he says, it did come from me, it came from this divine being, I didn't write it. And then the same thing with the Quran. Muhammad was given the book by Allah as Gabriel communicated the message to him. That's what our Muslim friends would say. Um, and so this is a pretty unique situation that the Bible is in. It makes a unique claim here. He says, yes, humans wrote it, but God was involved. God was involved, but it wasn't like God just wrote it down and buried it in the ground and they had to go dig it up. And it, it wasn't like that he word for word just fed it to them and they wrote it down. Something unique is happening here in the Bible because it admits that humans wrote it. And so you say, Alex, is it just a human book? No. Humans wrote it, but it's not just a human book because it says, unlike other human writings, God was uniquely involved in the writing of these books. He didn't directly dictate it, even though there's places where that happened, or he didn't tell them to dig it up somewhere, or that he wrote it down and they had to go and find it, but he claims to be the ghostwriter on the project that is the Bible. Are you guys familiar with ghostwriters? That's like, sometimes you'll see this politician who come out, and uh, they've been touring around, they've been doing all this, and all of a sudden they drop a 300-page book, and you're like, how did they find time to write this 300-page book while they were doing all this? They didn't really write it. They had somebody who 
wrote it for them, and they didn't put their name on it, but they did all the work, and then the, the celebrity or the politician gets their name on the book while they actually paid someone to do the actual writing. And so even though there's human writers involved, this ultimately is God's work. That's what the Bible claims. So let's talk about that. Let's kind of flesh this out a little bit and wrestle with this idea because this is unique. This is a unique concept in the religious world. In 2 Timothy 1, verses 16 through 21, it said this. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven. We were with him on the holy mountain. And also we have the prophetic word strongly confirmed, and you will do well to pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, know this. No prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so you have Peter here explaining as he as he's written these things down and he sent this out to people who have become followers of Jesus Christ. And the first thing he said is, these aren't old wives' tales. These aren't myths where I was like, that sounds like a really good story. We should propagate this and spread this around and ultimately sacrifice our lives for it. He said, this is something that we saw. Now, there are popular myths in our culture, right? Have you ever heard this one? If you put a frog into cold water and then you slowly heat up the water, the frog won't jump out. I've heard that over and over again in my life, and it's usually some kind of like caution against compromise because it happens slow, and you don't notice the change. You don't notice the change. Next thing you know, you're a dead frog in a pot. That's actually not true. If the water gets too uncomfortable for the frog, he jumps out. I was reading a scientific periodical a couple weeks ago, and they're like, we don't know how this started. This idea is crazy. They're like, go put a frog. They're like, don't torture animals. But they're like, if you go put a frog in a pot, as soon as that water gets uncomfortable for the frog, he's going to hop out. No frog will sit there and boil to death. But that's, a, that's an old wives' tale. It's a popular myth. I remember when I was down in Tennessee at a church, there was this road, and they were like, don't drive on that road at night. And I'm like, why? Is it curvy? You know, a lot of deer? You know, is it dangerous? They're like, 200 years ago, there were two farmers who fell off their cart and the cart rolled over them and they died and they still haunt that road. And if you go to that road and you stop your car and take off your parking brake, you will coast backwards because the ghosts are pushing you. I was like, I gotta go check this road out. So I went to the road. It's on an incline. If you go to a road on the incline and you take off your parking brake, you're gonna roll backwards. There's probably nothing mystical going on there. There's probably just gravity happening. And so a lot of times we have these old wives' tales, we have these myths in our culture, and Peter says, this isn't some story I heard. This is something I saw. I wrote down what I literally saw. This is an eyewitness account. I'm giving you a witness of what I saw. I saw supernatural things, and I wrote them down. They didn't believe because their families believed. They didn't believe because their culture believed. They didn't believe because they were promised something. They saw something supernatural, and that's why they believed. They said they heard and they saw. Their senses were like, this is real. We really see this. And they, he said, that's why we wrote this down. But then if you, 
if you read on, he says here, we also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed in verse 19. And he talks about this metaphor here of a light in a dark place and this morning star rising up in your hearts. And so what he's saying is not only have we seen supernatural things and we bear witness to what we were eyewitnesses to, but he says we've also seen the word of God do supernatural things inside of people. He says, we've seen supernatural things with our own eyes, and then we've seen the word of God do supernatural things in our own hearts. He says that the things that he's seen and the things that he wrote down about Jesus, he says, when people read about it, when people encounter Jesus through these words, he says, something happens on the inside of them. On the darkest, loneliest parts of their soul, a light comes alive. Something comes alive. It gets brighter in the darkest, emptiest spots of your soul when you read. And finally here, he says in verse 21, no one sat down to wrote the Bible without supernatural empowerment from the Holy Spirit. It says here that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, that, that God was uniquely involved in the process of writing this book. He didn't override their free will, and he's like, like a puppet master controlling them, like, you will now write, you know, and he moves their arms, but he was guiding their free will to communicate his message of love and forgiveness. And the word we use in the church world, in the Christian world, to describe this phenomenon is inspiration. We say the Bible was inspired by God. It was inspired by God to convey his love and his forgiveness in the person of Jesus to us. And he uses all these broken people, all these flawed people, all these people experiencing and seeing things inside of themselves, God doing things, and things that they're seeing God do around them, and he uses them to write down who he is and what he's about. And in 2 Timothy 2, verses 16 through 17, it says, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the follower of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And the, uh, this translation here says that all scripture is inspired by God, but some translations say all scripture is God-breathed, which gets a little bit closer to the original language here. God breathes into the writers or onto the writers as they wrote the word of God, but God also breathes out through the scripture into our life. God uses humans to communicate to humans. He could have said, hey, I'm going to have a bunch of angels write this book, but instead he had a bunch of humans write this book to humans about what he is like. In fact, when God came to this world in the form of a man, in the form of Jesus, he did not come and say, I'm going to show up in God form and be 100 feet tall and shooting lasers out of my hands. That would have been awesome, but he didn't do that. Instead, he came in human form, right? He communicated to humans with human authors. He communicated salvation to us in human form. God uses humans to help humans. He uses humans to change the human world, humans like you and me. And sometimes I hear people complain, they're like, where's God? Where's God? Like, there's that situation over there. Where was God at? I think God is constantly sending people, men and women, into this world, and he's giving them a passion and a desire for the broken places in our world, and he's giving them opportunities to step up and heal the broken places. And we say, where is God? God uses humans in human world, in the human world, to hear, uh, to heal what's broken, to end wars, to heal diseases. God keeps working through 
people. And so we shouldn't think it's too weird when we come to the Bible and we say, okay, God used humans to write this book, and it's got a human perspective, but at the same time, it's got God's fingerprints and breath all over it, and he ultimately inspired it. Sometimes people complain, God doesn't speak. They're like, I've never heard God speak. Why is God so silent? If God is real, if he really wants me to hear from him, if he really wants me to know him, if he wants me to have a relationship with him, and he does, that's why Jesus came to earth and he, he died in our place on the cross so that we could have a relationship with God, we could experience the presence of God again, that he'd wipe away our sin and he'd give us our, his right standing with God. He wants a relationship with us. But people say, if that's the case, how come I don't hear from him? Well, sometimes we say we want to hear from God and we put earplugs in at the same time. It would be like if I asked Darby a question and then I put in my earplugs and I hit play on my podcast. And I ask her a question and then I immediately, this is a real scenario that happened, that's why I'm saying this. And I immediately hit play on my podcast and go back to washing the dishes. And I asked her a question, but if I really wanted to hear, I'd probably take out my headphones, right? There's sometimes where we say we want to hear from God, but we avoid all the places that God actually speaks. And one of the places God speaks is through the Bible. And so you can't say, I've never heard from God, so I don't think there is a God. If you've never actually taken time to look into the Bible and read it and say, God, if you're real, if you really had, uh, if this was your breath, your very words, like, will you speak to me through it? Sometimes we refuse to come to the places we know God speaks because it's easier to complain that God doesn't speak than it is to show up at the places that he wants to speak to us. And so God uses 40 different human authors over 1,500 years to put together this book. And each uniquely expressed this message of Jesus, of love and forgiveness through their own personality. And this is really unique because Paul is very philosophical. Peter is right to the point. James is very practical. You have Old Testament guys like Jonah who are very cynical. Jeremiah is depressed all the time. Solomon goes through a phase in Ecclesiastes where he's suicidal. And yet through each of these flawed authors, God begins to convey this message about how much he cares about humans. And God ultimately breathes through each of these unique individuals and communicates a timeless message to humanity at the same time using each of their individual personalities. And I love that, that God, when he uses you, he doesn't say, I'm just going to ramrod your personality to do what I want. He's like, oh, no, I'm going to uniquely use your personality to accomplish something through you. And just like each instrument, if I, I wanted to have a bunch of instruments up here, but we didn't have any wind instruments, which is so weird because Darby has like a million instruments, but no wind instruments. But if I was up here playing a saxophone... It would be my same breath, same person, but it would make a very different sound than I got up here and if I played a flute, right? It's my same breath breathing out, but it's a different instrument, so it makes a different sound. And so through each of these authors, we have God breathing out his message, but it's a different sound, a different personality, a different style coming out across or through all of them. Through all these authors have this unique style, but at the same time, they have a similar voice as God writes one cohesive melody across time. And if you read through the Bible, what you find is there's different cultures and different language and different personalities, but there's this consistent thread that God said, hey, humanity's been separated from my presence, and as a result, the world's a mess. And we can all look around that and see that in our personal lives and in our communities, in our workplaces, and in our cities. And he says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send someone into your world who's going to restore the relationship between God and humanity. 
And so he promised this special person, the Messiah, and he said they're going to come through this special people that have set apart to be a platform for my Messiah, the Jewish people. And then Jesus comes onto the scene and announces that he's the Messiah and he lays down his life in our place so that our relationship with God can be restored to all who believe on Jesus Christ, to become students of the way that he lived and loved. And so this cohesive melody stretches throughout the Bible, even as you read individual parts that have unique sounds. And the Bible is not just something God breathed into, but it's something that God breathed out of. And it's something that God breathes out of into our life. The Bible is the instrument through which God plays music to our souls. One of the things that I love is in Genesis 2-7, it says that God breathed life into humanity. The first humans, they were just shells until God breathed life into them. And I think now God still breathes spiritual life into our lives when we go to the Bible and we open it up and he's still breathing out life and creation into our souls. The Bible's full of the breath of God. The supernatural life in these words, this arrangement of words that people wrote down on animal skins and on scrolls and ultimately onto paper that went through printing presses. What I'm saying is that there's something about this writing that when you read it, when you you pour yourself into it, you begin to encounter the supernatural presence of God. It's different than other writings. I can read some great books that inspire my mind or move my emotions, but there's something supernatural that happens when you really soak and spend time in this book. So you might be saying, Alex, okay, um, do you really believe that this book contains the very words of like, maybe you can't get on board with that. And I remember when I was in college, I really struggled with this. I was like, this is a big pill to swallow. That's a big idea to say, okay, yes, I'm jumping on board with that. And um, one of my college professors asked me a series of questions that really helped me with this. And he, he, the first question was, do you believe there is an all-powerful God? Now, if you say no then I'm not surprised that you don't believe the Bible's supernatural. Sometimes people tell me, they're like, I don't believe the Bible. I'm like, do you believe there's a God? They're like, no. I'm like, well, that makes sense you don't believe the Bible, because if there's not a God, there's no point believing this book is anything supernatural to it. But if you do believe there's a supernatural, all-powerful God, isn't it reasonable to assume he'd want to communicate with us? Isn't it reasonable to assume that he had the power to convey his message through flawed human beings to present his word to us? to preserve it, and to get his message of love and forgiveness to us. My professors used to ask me, do you believe that we have a God who is so powerful he could bring Jesus back from the dead? I was like, yes, I believe that. And they said, if God is that powerful, couldn't he also preserve and protect his message to us through the Bible? I'm like, oh, I guess if I believe people are coming back from the dead, that's not too big of a jump to also believe this. If you don't believe that Jesus came back from the dead, well, it makes sense that you don't believe the Bible. Paul tells Timothy that the word of God is useful for rebuking, for teaching, for correcting. And uh, this passage in Timothy that I read, 2 Timothy 2, um, uh, 6, 3, 16 through 17, it, it, this, it comes in a long passage where Paul keeps saying to Timothy, this is what you need to do as a leader. You need to do this. You need to do this. This is what needs to happen in your life. Over and over again, it's a you need to, you must, you should. And so I think a lot of times when we get to this passage, we're like, oh, scripture is given to correct and rebuke and teach. 
I'm going to whip this bad boy open and see who I can start correcting and teaching and rebuking because I got it open and now I'm going to tell you what's wrong. And I think if we look at the context of the passage, Paul is telling Timothy, the Bible should be rebuking and correcting you, not as a weapon for you to use to rebuke and correct others. And I think we need to remember this. A lot of times people see the Bible and they're like, well, this isn't for affecting my life. I got it all together. This is for you messed up, these people out here. And so we jump on social media and we're like, let me slap this Bible verse on here and tell you how you're wrong. And then somebody slaps back with another one, you know, and it goes back and forth. If we look at scripture as this is to rebuke and correct me, not as a weapon for me to beat someone else over the head with, um, I think we'll begin to experience the Bible in the right way. It's easy to reject this book and say it's just the writings of humans because I don't like what it says. Nobody likes to be told they're wrong. I don't like to be told I'm wrong. I don't like people to say, you know what, you're doing it the wrong way. In fact, uh, for a while I had this statement where sometimes I spell things wrong, sometimes I just say words wrong. Like there's words that should be pronounced a certain way and I'm like, I don't know how to pronounce that so I just go with it. You know, that, that's a holdover from seminary where they told me, they're like, you don't know how to pronounce some word, name in the Bible that's super weird. They're like, just say it with confidence. People will think you know what you're talking about. And so I just kind of roll through life like that sometimes, you know. And so sometimes there'll be a word and I don't know how to pronounce it. And so I'm just like, looks like this. And I say it and somebody will come up and be like, hey, that's not how it's said. And so this is how much I hate being corrected. I started saying this. Well, I've heard it both ways. I've heard it both ways. I've heard people say it that way. You could totally say, you know, you're probably right, but where I'm from, I've heard it said this way. Have I? Probably not, but you know, it's a way to cover me because I don't like to be told that I'm wrong. And so sometimes when we go to the Bible, we don't like what it, it says, and so we say, I'll just downgrade it to the wisdom of humans, and that way I can reject it or accept it. But the Bible is there to rebuke and correct us, not to make us feel miserable about ourselves, not so we can be like, man, we are garbage people. We are no good. We are missing it by a mile. But rather, so that we can become like Jesus Christ. We can live and love like Jesus. It says, so that we can be taught to live righteously. So we can live the right way. So that our lives would make this world a better place like Jesus' life did. When the Bible corrects us, it's not to condemn us, but rather it's to warn us that the way that we're living won't give us what we want. See, sometimes our culture tells us things, and sometimes our own desires tell us things, and we're like, if I had that, then I'd be happy. Or if I had that, that's what's going to lead to purpose and success and meaning. And what the Bible, why it rebukes us and warns us is, hey, hey, you're putting all your time and energy into that, and it's not going to give you what you want. It's not going to turn out like you think. This isn't going to end the way you think it's going to end. And so the Bible doesn't do this to make us feel bad about ourselves, so we beat ourselves up, and so we're like, man, we're the worst. But it tells us this because Jesus loves us, and he wants us to know that if we keep living this way, we're not going to ultimately get what we think we are. Sometimes I'm like, you know what? Eating a whole cake and eating a half gallon of ice cream right now is going to make me happy. It never does, because I'm lactose intolerant, and when I eat that ice cream, I am painfully ill. But it keeps telling me this lie, right? And there's a lot of things in our life that tell us that same lie, and what the Bible is warning us is, hey, it's ultimately not going to give you what it, you think it is. It's ultimately not going to satisfy. See, the Bible corrects us because it bumps us back from the edge and back towards Jesus. And it says, hey, if you keep running that way, 
that's not where Jesus is. And if we want to transform the world, if we want to live the life that Jesus lived, a life in the presence of God, we have to follow what this says. And so what do we take away from this? What do we do with this? Make a habit of reading the Bible and asking God to reveal himself to you. I'm really bad about reading the Bible academically so that I can get more knowledge, so that I can teach something or preach something or share something. But go to the Bible to encounter the presence of God. Open it up and read it and say, God, will you speak to me through your word today? Can I have an encounter with who you are? And you say, Alex, I don't believe there's a God and I don't believe this is a supernatural book. I still challenge you to open it up and see if it's supernatural. It's one thing to keep it closed and say, I don't think it's supernatural. Open it up and say, God, if you're real, Jesus, if you're a real person, really risen from the dead, will you reveal yourself to me through the word of God? And then read it and see if he reveals himself. When I did that, he revealed himself to me. Now, if you read it and you say, nope, he didn't, then I can't argue with you. But if you haven't tried that, it's so easy to say, I don't think the Bible's supernatural. I'm not going to even look at it. If it's not supernatural, what's the risk about opening it up, giving it a try, and seeing what it says? And then think about how God uses humans in our world to fix broken human things. And God used humans to write the scriptures. God was in the form of a human in Jesus Christ when he went to the cross. Sometimes we sit around in our world and we pray for God to fix things that God has given us the ability to go and fix. And he'll supernaturally come alongside us and empower us and be with us. But sometimes we're waiting for God to fix something that's right in front of us that's broken in our community or in our home or in our workplace. And we can jump in and be about fixing that. And God, just like he supernaturally empowered the writers of scripture, can supernaturally empower us to transform the world where we are. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you've communicated to us who you are and how much you've loved us. You communicated how far we were away from God and how much you were willing to sacrifice to bring us close through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that the Bible won't just become something that we esteem and keep on a bookshelf or something that we just dismiss without ever looking into, but it'll become something that we constantly go to to feel fresh breath from your lips into our souls, reviving us and restoring us and giving us life and hope again. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will make the Bible come alive. Lord, I pray there's people who've never read the Bible that, Lord, you will uh, speak to them through the Bible this week, that they will be compelled to go to it, to dive deep into it, to, to linger in its words, to not just rush through it, to say that they've read so much, or to just gain more academic theological knowledge, but, Lord, that they'll stay in the text until they see you and hear from you and sense your presence. And I pray all these things like I believe Jesus Christ would. Amen. Amen.